really animates me in my work as editor of Bible Study Magazine is empowering Christian people to read their Bibles. I'm not afraid of what they're going to find there. I love taking the work of certain careful and capable Bible students. We call them Bible scholars and making that work accessible to engineers and moms and even bivocational pastors who simply do not have time in their lives to read all the thick books where these insights into the Bible are found. Not every academic biblical studies book is equally insightful or even doctrinally faithful, but we have an amazing amount of rich stuff out there that uses maybe a bit too much academic jargon and is therefore begging to be popularized. We need gifted popularizers. And you're about to meet one of the most gifted, Nancy Guthrie. She knows her Bible. She has worked hard to read what the scholars say and show how much good is in it for all Bible readers. My guest on the Bible Study Magazine podcast today is Nancy Guthrie, and I found myself wanting to ask the same question to all my guests. Nancy, how do you currently serve the body of Christ? Well, uh, I hope in, in the just in the way I live and being a vital part of my church. I hope that's a big part of it. I, I do get to teach at my church because I travel and do a lot of speaking around the country. My focus at my church is in the summers. I teach a women's Bible in the summer, which is so much fun. And women actually come from lots of churches around Nashville to that study since so often in the summertime, uh, they don't have something at their own church. So um, I, I do that. I do do a lot of writing and speaking. Um, for five years, I just recently brought it to a close. I've done a podcast called the Help Me Teach the Bible podcast, which was really my desire to serve the average lay Bible teacher to infuse them with courage and some equipping to open up the Bible and teach rather than use someone else's material. Um, one other thing I do is my husband and I uh, host weekend retreats for couples who have lost children. Um, my husband, David, and I have a son, Matt, who's 30. And we also had a daughter named Hope and a son named Gabriel, who each just lived a short time. And so one thing that has grown out of that is for the past 11 years, we've hosted these weekend retreats called Respite Retreats. And so that's a few of the things that I do. That's great. I've seen you on some Gospel Coalition videos over the years, and you just mentioned you wanted to equip lay Bible teachers in churches. You can do this. And that was the that was the thing that really just jumped out to me as I was reading one of your recent books, Even Better Than Eden. Let me get the whole title here. Have it written down. Nine Ways the Bible's Story Changes Everything About Your Story. I wanted to talk about that book. I wanted to make an observation, though, that follows up on what you just said. I just love the way that I read what you wrote, and I thought, I know that she is really doing her homework. <laughs> and if I turn to the footnotes and the bibliography, I'm going to see a bunch of good stuff that she's read. And was I right? I was right. That was the that seemed to be the design. Can you give me a brief rundown of this book that, uh, that you've written not too long ago? Why did you write it? Well, I you know, the, the reason I write everything, Mark, everything pretty much that I've ever written is out of a desire to learn myself. I think anybody who teaches the Bible knows that we get a much firmer grip on whatever it is if we're not studying it 
solely to kind of learn about it, but because we're going to have to give it out to somebody else. And so we need to get really solid on it. And that work of coming up with a way to articulate it to someone else is what helps us with that. So, you know, I've, I've been on a journey, I would guess, uh, over the last 15 years, you know, maybe 15 years ago is when I first began to discover biblical theology. And the, even the notion that the Bible has one central storyline centered on the person and work of Christ. You know, I grew up in church, you know, I was one of those who was there every Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night and vacation Bible school and all of that. And I studied Bible in college and worked at Christian publishing right out of college. And I was very involved for a number of years in Bible study fellowship. But it wasn't until I began to listen to theologians and teachers and preachers who approach the Bible with a sense of redemptive history, that one story centered on the person and work of Christ. I mean, that just changed everything about my understanding of the Bible. Instead of just having this collection of Bible stories that I didn't know how to connect into any coherent whole, it began to come together for me. And so I, I wrote a uh, a series of Bible studies called the Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament Bible Study Series. And so began to be so much fun to hear from women who are having the same experience that I had been having and working with those, those kind of aha experiences of, you know, I've studied the Bible before, but I've never seen that before. I've never seen how those things fit together. And as I continued to learn, um, I just grew in my understanding that the Bible, not only does it one story, it has a number of central themes that the divine author of this book has written into his book. And I began to see that it was those themes that added to that sense of a coherency of the story and that those themes did something even more than that. They helped me to see the beauty and the sufficiency and the necessity of Jesus Christ from many different angles. And so I began to get familiar with these themes. So it's a long way of answering, uh, no, even better than Eden. Um, I take nine themes that run from the beginning to the end of the Bible, um, that work their way through every part of the Bible through the Pentateuch and the history books and the wisdom books and the prophets and the gospels and the epistles and all the way into revelation and the consummation. And I just trace that story from beginning to end. Um, and it's my contention that as we live our lives out of that story, as that story becomes the central touch point from our lives, it changes everything about our lives. Absolutely. Yeah, I had a very similar experience. I can date that, you know, gestalt moment to 17 years ago, I guess now 18, because it was 2003. And I actually had my Old Testament. Wow, you got a date. <laughs> yes, I remember. Yeah. And what's so sobering to me is that I had sat through 
church services just like you, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I was, you know, a, somewhat of a high achiever wanting to memorize verses, and I was a Bible major, and it was several years into seminary before this, what now to me, very simple presentation was made. And what was also sobering is I didn't initially get it. I had a good roommate who's also been on the podcast, uh, who ended up going through the same seminary program I did who had to keep explaining it to me until I finally got it. But when I finally got it, you know, you've heard many people say, you know, buy my book and it's the one key, you know, the, to open up the Bible to you. Well, this is the one thing in my life where I can say, this was the key, especially for the Old Testament. And I knew my New Testament pretty well, but I didn't know what to make of all these individual stories of the Old Testament until I got that perspective. Now you use some jargon that absolutely we need to explain to people biblical theology. I actually think I heard you define it in two different ways there. Uh, am I right? How would you define biblical theology? Uh, maybe I'd call it two different aspects. Um, um, I have a written definition of it that I give. I, I offer biblical theology workshops for women. I have a written definition of it. I, I guess I should have had that memorized. That's okay. um, but uh, biblical the theology is coming to the Bible, understanding that it is one uh, cohesive story centered on the person and work of Christ. That was definition one. The okay, one and that, how about if I say this, and that the divine author has written into his book a number of central themes yep, that's that it. help definition us two. to rightly understand what he wants most to communicate through this book. Excellent. You know, one of the purposes of this podcast and of Bible Study Magazine, um, as I've moved into this role, uh, taking on this magazine, uh, is to invite lay people in churches who want more, who want to dig deeper into an academic biblical studies conversation. And I want to show them the benefits of it. And to me, you know, this is again, right at the top of the list. And you, if you don't know the jargon, you might be a little confused because sometimes biblical theology is referring to that redemptive historical story, the story of Christ's redemption, of God uh, through Christ buying back the world, uh, restoring creation. And then sometimes it's focused on these themes, and that is what your book focuses about, uh, focuses on. Now, uh, this season of the Bible Study Magazine podcast focuses on how to apply the Bible, and we've talked about many specific portions of Scripture, how to apply them. I want to ask you to start giving us some wisdom by answering a more general, uh, talking about a more general biblical teaching, a theological concept, and okay. I want to ask you to help us apply it to our lives. Okay. It would be the concept of identity. This is a hot topic now, and you talk about it really helpfully in your book, Even Better Than Eden. If I notice that I'm confused by a culture that tells me, be who you are, or if I'm dispirited by a culture that tells me, you don't measure up to our ideals, how can I apply the Bible's teaching, this biblical theological theme about my identity to my life? One of the nine ways the Bible story changes everything about your story, right? And uh, like all of these, it, it begins there in Eden. We have to see who we were originally made to be. We look at the sense of identity originally given to Adam and Eve and how that was intended to develop. And, you know, the very foundation 
for understanding who we are is there in Genesis chapter one, that we are made in the image of God. And I think that can seem very vague to people. And so one thing that's maybe helped me with that is to go further on in the scriptures to try to add some meat to the bones of, of what that means. Uh, Psalm 8, I think, is helpful, where it talks, it's talking about the original man. Um, remember that, you know, uh, who is man that you are mindful of him? And it says that he was made, that he was crowned with glory and honor. So we would say, you know, we originally have some measure of the glory and honor of God himself. And then the other thing that helps me is to go into the New Testament where we, we get to much later in the story where the image of God that was in, in us that was marred by the sin of Adam, it, we discover it's being restored. And it tells us what it's being restored toward. So I think that we can read that back into Genesis and say, okay, here's some aspects of what it was. And it talks about being restored to true uh, righteousness and knowledge. So there's a moral aspect to it. There's, um, there's a wisdom aspect to it, a, a thinking right aspect to it. So that's where we begin. And when we get to Genesis chapter three, you know, wherever, however we tell the story of the Bible, the crisis is always there. That's where it begins in Genesis chapter three, where uh, sin took root and corrupted everything. Now, it doesn't mean we're no longer made in the image, that we no longer have any of his image at all, but it does mean it's been corrupted. And that is the big crisis. We're going to trace this theme of identity. Here's the crisis. How am I ever going to become? How is humanity ever going to become what God intended them to be? They're made in his image. They were supposed to be. Remember, Adam was supposed to, and Eve were supposed to have dominion. So there was a royal aspect to their identity. Um, we discover that Adam, in this role, he was supposed to work and keep the garden, which Moses' words for that, he uses the same words later when he's talking in numbers about what a priest is supposed to do in a temple. So we have the sense right there in Genesis, his identity, that, that there's a royal dominion to it. There is a priesthood sense to it. And, and as we trace the story, wondering what God's going to do, how he's going to restore us to this sense of identity that he intended for his people, we get to the, we get to the scene in Exodus where uh, the people of God, he, he brings them out of Egypt, and he says to them, you are my treasured possession. You're going to be a kingdom of priests. And I don't know what you think, Mark. You know, I just think maybe we can read over that. That just kind of can sound theological and biblical and not very real to us. And that's why we struggle with our identity, right? Because we don't have these biblical categories for understanding who God intended us to be. But of course, as we trace the story of the people of Israel, they just don't live up to that. Um, it, it's just failure. We get to the prophets and the prophets are pointing out 
the issues, that they're not living up to all that God intended to be, but they're also pointing toward hope that, that a day is coming when that image of God in them will be restored. And then we get to the Gospels. And of course, this one who is the image of the invisible God, this one who, uh, according to Hebrews 1, bears his exact imprint um, according to John 1, this word became flesh and we beheld his glory, the only glory of the Father. And we see the ultimate image of God entered into the world. He took upon himself our everything that marred our image. He, 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 this one who was so full of glory and beauty and majesty poured himself into human flesh and took our sin upon himself for the purpose that we might be restored to his image. As we get into the epistles, it's over and over again, the, the impact the gospel is intended to have on us is that it should, it's remaking us into his image. It's going to the work in the interior of our lives. And, and we're not surprised when Peter, speaking to the church, calls us a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He's, he's drawing on that language from back in Exodus, but he's saying, you know, this is, this is who God is remaking you into being. But the best news, and the best news always comes in the good news of consummation is that the day is coming. Here's what we're headed toward. If you want to try to understand your identity, yes, you are, even now God is at work in you um, restoring that sense of royal priesthood in your life. But when we get to Revelation and it reveals what it's going to be like when Christ returns and all that he is at work doing in our lives now comes to its full fruition, like we read there in Revelation chapter five about those who are gathered around the throne and he calls them that we've become a kingdom and priests to our God. And if we hadn't really traced this whole story, maybe we would just kind of run over that and it wouldn't mean anything. But I think it says we finally become everything he always intended us to be and that we, you know, right now, you and I, uh, Paul writes in, in 1 Corinthians 3, that we are being transformed from glory to glory. So there's a process of transformation taking place. But then he, he tells the Philippians that, that when Christ returns, he's going to make our lowly bodies like his lowly body. So we're being transformed in those areas of righteousness and knowledge. But it's not just that. There's a physical aspect to his image that when he returns is, is going to be complete um, because we are going to be made glorious, like he is like glorious. His glorious body. It's going to be incredible. Wonderful. Now you remind me of a great quote from Spurgeon that my longtime pastor loved to quote. He said, if you, uh, if you prick him, he would bleed Bibline. He would bleed Bible. Yeah, and so just hear this folks out there in podcast listening and or watching land. You prick Nancy Guthrie <laughs> and out comes the entire Bible story 
of the image of God. And you see how that individual statement in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, you know, let us make man in our own image, male and female created he, them. Um, that is absolutely valuable, but it doesn't really make full sense until you situate it in that entire story. I remember yeah. Kevin Van Hooser, who's been on the podcast, saying, you can't answer the question, who am I, until you answer the question of what story am I a part? And as you oh, talked, I good. just thought, how much I want the people in my own church who are under the sound of my Bible teaching, people I influence, to be able to just off the top of, the he of their head, like you did, you know, you weren't reading from a script, to just give that whole story. And why do we tell people, read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible? It's so that when that Gestalt moment comes and you can see the whole picture, you're like, oh, that's how that verse in Philippians fit. Oh, Exodus 19 and Revelation, their statements about priest, uh, the priestly and kingdom roles that we have, they fit together. It's not an accident. This language keeps getting repeated. It's so rich. It doesn't happen in an instant either, does it, Mark? No. Right? It, it happens over a lifetime. I remember being like probably in my 30s and being involved in this Bible study. And I remember there were certain people who seemed to know where stuff is in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you would talk about a certain book of the Bible, they seemed to know actually what that book was about. And I just remember thinking, I'll never know the Bible like that. And, you know, like that would take a lifetime to know the Bible like that. And now I often say at my workshops, exactly. It's going to take a lifetime. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, what's wonderful is that the Bible is the one book that's worth spending a lifetime seeking to know and have become the fabric of our lives. And also, the Bible is the one book, maybe the one thing in the world that can withstand the scrutiny of a lifetime spent studying it. Because the scriptures cannot be broken. If these are God's words, we can rest on their truth. They hold together. The close, most things in the world, the closer you look, they fall apart. In the Bible, the more you dig, it actually holds together more solidly. You see those connections more solidly. So That's been my experience too. I, I was always filled with a sense of dread when a particular teacher of mine would tell a story about a missionary lady who said she hadn't read her Bible in decades because she already knew what it said. And I that made me fear early on as like a teenager in college thinking, oh no, I don't want to get to that point where I feel like there's nothing left for it to give. And years ago, I realized that's not gonna happen. The more I read this thing, the more stuff comes out. And the more I read good Bible teachers, the more that Christ's gift of teachers to his church helps me see more. And you were among those, uh, those gifts to me and I really appreciate your book. I believe that Tyndale's plowboy, the average person, should have the Bible in contemporary language. That Bible translations, therefore, are key tools for the Great Commission that Christ gave us to disciple the nations, to teach them to observe everything Christ has commanded us. I believe that regular Christians can and must read and study their Bibles on their own. I believe that we're not on our own, that the Spirit will guide us into all truth. And I believe that one of the Spirit's most important tools for doing this is other human teachers, despite our own failures. I believe 
in Bible study. And all this is why I find myself constantly turning to Logos Bible software in all my work. It makes the Bible text accessible to me at a level of detail I just don't get elsewhere. And it also gives me quick and inexpensive access to the work of many, many careful Bible teachers. The new Logos 9 now makes it even easier for me to do this. And I want to show you what I mean. If I type in any Bible passage into the passage guide, I get a prioritized list of links to all my commentaries. Logos 9 is all about small improvements that add up to something bigger. And now, in this new release, Logos 9, Logos gives me extra information about all my many commentaries, including even what denomination their authors come from. This is information that does help me in my Bible study. I'm all the time doing this, checking on my commentators, getting help from them, understanding scripture. Logos 9 has other small but big improvements like dark mode for all you dark mode people out there. I'll never understand you, but more power to you. It has the totally revamped fact book, a great place to start your study on all kinds of biblical topics. Christianity can get unmoored from the Bible, and what a horror it is when that happens. Don't let it happen to you. Use the best Bible study tools there are. Use Logos 9. Go to Logos.com and check out some of our base packages. Download our mobile app and start using the tools there. If you listen to a podcast about Bible study, you're probably pretty serious about it. You should not remain content with the free resources available on the internet. Check out the new Logos 9. Now, okay, let's, let me ask you some more questions. One great strength of my own upbringing in church, and it sounds like we had a similar upbringing, was that I was taught to try to dig deep into individual passages of scripture. And maybe they were trying to give me the big picture, and I was just too young and immature to get it. I was just stuck at the concrete level. Um, but I don't remember systematic theology, you know, pulling Bible passages together into a theology, being quite as strong in my upbringing. I think I would have come across individual passages about clothing, for example. You wrote a chapter about this, and I would have failed to draw them together. You've got a whole chapter in Even Better Than Eden about clothes. Talk to me about how you apply the first story about clothes, the fig leaves in Genesis 3. Then talk to me about how you apply the whole Bible's teaching on clothing. Well, let me say this. First of all, I wouldn't see that as systematic theology. I would see this as biblical theology. Sure. Systematic, you know, um, if we were going to talk about sin, this story would come into um a biblical theology, certainly. But it, yeah, in terms of that story of clothing, that's probably the most unexpected uh, theme in the Bible that people um, discover in even better than Eden. Um, but this idea, but it does, it's striking, isn't it? That when you think about the brevity of words about that we learn about creation, really Genesis chapter one and two, and that one of the things we're told is that they are naked and unashamed. And so I had always looked at that as, as some kind of ideal, certainly unashamed. That sounds like an ideal, you know, right. And, and naked. Oh, okay. Um, but I think it's a good lesson in always reading the scriptures and asking the question first, what might the original author have intended his original audience to understand from this passage. And I think when we think about Moses speaking to that first generation who would have read the book of Genesis, when they read that they were naked and unashamed, they would have seen a problem. Now, I know as soon as I say that there's a problem, 
in Eden, uh, even before sin entered, people get really nervous. Um, when I say a problem, I, I'm saying um, as Eden was pristine, but it was in process. What we read about in Genesis chapter one and two was not yet everything that God intended for them to be. And so when we read they were naked and unashamed, it doesn't mean that God's plan for Adam and Eve was for them to remain naked forever. And I think those original readers would have gotten that. And the reason they would have gotten that is that, you know, in that ancient culture, they would have recognized that, okay, here's these royal representatives. We already talked about that. They're, they're, they're meant to exercise dominion. And royal representatives are always dressed. They wear royal robes. And we actually discover this throughout the scriptures. I mean, this that's at the heart of the story of Joseph. Remember that many colored robe, which I colored plenty of times in Sunday school. You probably did too, Mark. You know, I never understood what it was. He's saying he's going to be the head of the family. No wonder his brothers got so mad. Uh, or Jonathan giving David his robe and his sword, saying, you're going to be the next king. And there are many examples of this in the Bible. Um, so when we read they're naked and ashamed, I think the original readers would have said, wait a minute, if, if they're a king and queen, how are they going to become dressed in royal robes? And to answer that question, we have to go to Genesis chapter three and almost try to imagine what would have happened if instead of falling for the serpent's lies, if Adam had have crushed the head of the serpent, crushed the head of that rebellion. And I think what we can understand when we read Genesis 1, 2, and 3 in context of the whole Bible is understand that's the way in which they would have been dressed in royal robes. They would have gone from glory to greater glory at that point. Um, and so this idea of clothing, it also there in Genesis 3, it, we get this hint as to what God is going to do to clothe them. He clothes them with the skins of an animal. We don't know what that animal was. We know Abel was a keeper of sheep. Maybe it was a lamb. We don't know. But we, we for sure get the sense of the source of our being clothed so that we can be in the presence of God. And that is God is going to provide the covering. One of the important aspects of your answer, and you just keep coming back to this over and over again, is the, the, uh, the, the way we've just got to situate everything we ask about the Bible into that story. So it's not that as, you know, Bavink says, I got a bunch of Bavink books I'm reading this year. I'm going through his Reformed Dogmatics. Um, he likes to say grace restores nature. And you might think, oh, okay, well, that means that we were naked in Eden. Uh, we're going to be naked again in the new earth. I'm not sure. I'm really looking forward to that. But no, it, the story of the Bible is a story from garden to city. There's a development that God intended. He said, subdue the earth, have dominion over it. And Al Walters likens it to a boy who catches a childhood disease and it causes you know, his growth to be pulled back, his development to be slowed. But then at age 12, he gets a vaccine or something and is brought back to health. And when he comes back to health, he doesn't start again at where he started with the disease at age five, he's age 17 and he's 
back on the track that, of growth that he was supposed to be on. So at every point, you're doing exactly what I expected mm -hmm. and what I think is so helpful, and that is situating answers to questions within this overall story of scripture. Uh, I talked earlier about your strength as a popularizer. You've done the work, it seems to me, in the more difficult and the more academic books. And I went and looked at those footnotes, like I said. Good, I love that. <laughs> I, I worked I hard on that. those. <laughs> you surely did. I was telling my wife, she's read more of these books than I have. Um, this is really excellent. And um, you, you've taken these important insights, you've communicated them to people who might have a little more trouble reading the New Studies in Biblical Theology series edited by good old D.A. Carson, for example, you know, too many footnotes in those books, you know, not quite enough insightful, memorable stories like the one that you told. I love this one about finding out that five other girls in your high school wore the same dress that you had to this one formal event. I just love the work of popularizers. I think it's so important and effective. I think it's my own calling. Can you indeed tell us about some of the more academic reading you did to prepare for this book or any other recent book? Yeah, thanks for asking that. Um, my most significant sources would have been Greg Beale, probably at the top of the list, his New Testament Biblical Theology. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And that insight about working and keeping, um, showing up elsewhere and Probably you know, giving an indication that, that was priestly. I, yeah, I think that comes from him. Probably so. Um, I, I, it, that's one of the, you know, it's a huge, huge book. And it's one that I hold up at my biblical theology workshops. And I say, if you read something in Even Better Than Eden, and you think to yourself, that can't be right, because I've never heard it before, I probably got it from this book. <laughs> and so uh, Greg Beale, a, a huge help. Uh, Meredith Klein, uh, J.V. Fesco, he, he, uh, I ordered his book, uh, Last Things First, short little book. And it was one of like, it got delivered to me on a Saturday morning and I didn't get off on the couch until I had finished it. Uh, lots of insight into Genesis from that book. Um, uh, some lectures by Lane Tipton, a former professor at Westminster Theological Seminary, helped me a great deal. Um, those are probably the most significant. I'll, when we're done, I'll think of somebody else I should have mentioned, but uh, probably those are the most significant. Yeah, I bring this up uh, in part because we make Logos Bible software and we sell all these books. And yes, I want people to buy them. Why do I want them to buy them? Because of the benefit that they bring that you show. You know, I grew up in a world that was kind of skeptical about seminary. They called it cemetery. And these are lovely people who love the Lord and taught me a ton. I'm not bitter, truly not. But I went through seminary and realized they just don't know. <laughs> They don't know the benefit that comes from reading these Ephesians 4 teachers that Christ has given to his church. And if you're still skeptical, I would say read this Nancy Guthrie book. I assume, you know, read any of her books and then check the footnotes and see where she's getting all this. This is not just, just coming from your own Bible study, although it's obviously correlated with your personal reading of the Bible. Um, you're not just repeating wholesale what they're saying. You're chewing through it, spitting it out like a mama bird for the baby birds it's in such an effective way. But I, th I think your book underlines the importance and value of academic study of scripture from faithful people who are just trying to do their best to dig into those details. You know, I hear from so many women who ask me the question, do I need to go to seminary? And 
I have kind of, I'm of two minds about that, I guess, because, or they, or there's sometimes they're surprised to hear that I didn't start seminary classes until I'd written a number of my books, which is, which is the case. Um, you can learn so much from reading good books, from finding good sources and reading it and not just casually reading it, you know, with a, a pencil in hand, circling, putting question marks and, and, you know, reading. So, so much of my teaching has come from that. It didn't originate in seminary. Now I did start taking seminary courses in 2009 and I've continued to take, I should be moving faster than I am, Mark, but you know, I have written a few books in there. Right. And so, um, you know, I, I take one or maybe two seminary classes a year working toward a degree and man, have those helped me. I mean, so many times I take one of those and want to go back and rewrite something that I've written before, improve it how I can. So I am a big believer in seminary, not just for getting a job, but just seminary for the love of learning and understanding God's word. But I'd like to encourage, especially women who that's just not in the cards for them. Sure. Is that what you need is access to some great books. Right. And you can learn so much, you know, not, not reading book because you think you ought to, but just like, I want to figure this out. I want to know this. And that's how most of my best learning has happened. Yeah. You know, I, I, re- I read what you're writing and I'm thinking, as I often do, the answer to that skepticism about, you know, seminary education, about academic study of scripture, you know, there's some fear there that's totally understandable. Oh no, am I going to go theologically liberal? Am, am I going to be led down the wrong path? I totally get that. I, I really think the answer to that is not, um, let me give you principles about why education is valuable. I think the answer is eat this. <laughs> You know, read this book and you will see there is meat there that you're not going to get at, you know, let's say maybe the bestseller that happens to be at your Christian bookstore. Maybe, maybe the bestseller is an Nancy Guthrie book. And then that case, you oh, would get it. Oh, I assure you it but, isn't. <laughs> yeah. I tend to think that the things that actually get to the top of the list just have very little meat in them. And my heart just cries out for people to get books more like yours. Let's go on to another chapter in your book. Okay. You have this whole chapter about the theme of the bridegroom in the Bible. And I'm afraid you're going to have to count me among the Christian men who do find it a little awkward and difficult to think about what it means that I am part of the bride of Christ. I think I've got some answers for that, but I'm asking you, help me apply that teaching to my own Well, I'd like to hear yours too, because this is the exact same thing I hear from my husband. You know, there's just a sense of what, thinking of myself as a bride, I don't know. I don't have a great answer except for you're going to have to get over it (laughs) because uh, this is the picture that the Bible uses once again, from beginning to end, I mean, there we are in Genesis chapter two. What is there? There's a bridegroom and a bride, and there's a failed bridegroom um, and a failed bride. And as we 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 trace the story through the Bible, you know, think about the prophet Isaiah or especially the prophet Hosea. They're describing this relationship that God wants to have with his people as a marriage and and the big problem of Isaiah and Hosea as they look out at God's people is this unfaithful bride. And so when we get to the Gospels, especially to me, 
John seems to have so centered in his mind, like, if you think about John, you think about all of those I am statements that he's telling us about who Jesus is, kind of one of those that doesn't fit on that list. And yet I think it's on his list as he wants to say to us, Jesus is the faithful bridegroom. If you think about it, uh, the, the first miracle, there's a failed bridegroom. And what happened? It's not a problem because Jesus, the faithful bridegroom is on the scene and he will do what the bridegroom has failed to do, which is provide this wine. And then the next chapter, uh, John 3, uh, John the Baptist, he's, he's saying, think people come to him, are you the Christ? No, I'm not the Christ. He said, I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. He's the bridegroom. And then you get to John chapter four. And this is where See, reading a smaller part of scripture in light of the larger story where it begins to really help us, I think, because here's this woman, maybe we haven't thought of her this way. She's had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband, right? What is that? Failed bridegrooms yeah. over and over again. They've never proved faithful. It's heartbreaking. And here is this one, and he is offering her living water. You drink this water, and you're never going to thirst again. And throughout the Bible, this idea of thirst and water and wells has always been connected with a marriage relationship. And Jesus is offering himself to her. And it's such a beautiful picture of the gospel, because here is this person who seems like the very last person that Jesus would want to join himself to in a marriage that's going to last forever. I mean, she's from the wrong side of the tracks and she's done everything wrong. And it's this beautiful picture of Jesus calling her to himself. And of course, so central to this, I mean, we're so helped by understanding this, including men who don't want to see themselves as a bride. You, you just got to read Ephesians 5, right? Because he says, right. this is what marriage has always been about. It's always been about this mystery of Christ and his church. And then, in fact, when we get to the end of the Bible, I mean, if you're looking forward to the consummation, to the return of Christ, let me tell you what, he's coming as a bridegroom and you're going to be part of the bride. And that's your place at the marriage supper of the lamb. That's your place in this one adorned as a bride coming out of heaven, the new Jerusalem. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of the beauty of the biblical authors. They use all of these different images to try to help us understand a reality. And I guess I think, and I'll speak to both men and women, regardless of your level of comfort, here's one thing I know. I know that what will satisfy you forever is an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And at the heart of it, I think that's what this image or metaphor is all about, this union that's going to last forever and the satisfaction of intimacy that's going to be a part of that forever. So maybe that can help maybe a little bit. Absolutely. No. And you know, you took mine. I mean, I, the, the two okay, major good. answers that I've had are that intimacy that is best glimpsed in marriage. Yes. A union of, you know, in this case, physical bodies, but what you're really going for is a union of soul. And now 12 and a half years in, I understand that better. Um, I realize, yeah, that's what love wants. It wants union. And I do want that and with permanency. Christ. Right. And then the your get over it response, you know, that's right too, because 
when God speaks, we are disciples and we are slaves. We say, yes, sir. And we say, jump how high. And it's not just, this is a little hint he drops somewhere. No, like you show, this is a theme. He wants to bring out this as a really important metaphor, much like father and people who didn't have and don't have good fathers may resist that. I don't want to think of God as father. You know, that brings all the wrong images to my mind. No, this is an insistent image and theme all throughout the Bible. Christ himself calls God the father. So I totally agree with your answer. Good, good. Yeah. You, you read another chapter on rest and, of course, the Sabbath features in a big way. And I wanted to invite you to get academic again and then get practical. When you hit a topic that is much discussed and even fought over among Christians, like Sabbath observance, how do you go about, do you go about studying the topic? And then we'll get practical. How do you study it? Well... Hopefully you read the footnotes on that one too, because uh, those were, were important in terms of acknowledging that there are theologians that have helped me, that I love, admire, who see this differently. Uh, and on that specific one, if you notice that footnote, I, I, I noted D.A. Carson, whom I love and admire so much. He has one view about whether or not we're still bound by the Sabbath. And then Richard Gaffin, formerly at Westminster Seminary, he has another view. I mean, I esteem them both so greatly. And um, so I, I acknowledge there's a couple of views here. But your, your question is, how did I go at it? The foundation of it for me was going back to Genesis 1 and 2, where this idea of rest on a seventh day was first introduced. And honestly, I had just never studied what was the meaning of that, what, what is being said there. And once I came to the conclusion that that rest of God would have been entered into in all that it was intended to be by Adam and Eve, had they obeyed, that became, okay, now as I begin to work that out through the scriptures, how does that understanding affect how I understand uh, the Ten Commandments to, to, to uh, keep the Sabbath day holy? And it began to be, to me, an understanding of a, a weekly reorientation toward this promised rest that Adam failed to lead humanity into. But Jesus, as the second Adam, will not fail to lead all who are joined to him into. And so that therefore, that, that command for them to keep the Sabbath day holy, it was this weekly touch point, this weekly reorientation toward that promise. And so then you come to the place, so what does that mean for you and me today, living in the light of the new covenant? And what seemed most clear to me is, I still need that reorientation. Um, and so the Sabbath for me is, and the other thing is that it's a gift. I mean, right. to understand the Sabbath as a gift rather than an obligation. Uh, I, I think so many of us come at it. And, and honestly, 
in my dark heart, sometimes I do too. I want to do my own thing, right? And I think I know the rest I really need. But as I seek to orient my life around God himself and seek to use his day to reorient myself, to shape my perspective, and mostly to keep resetting my heart on this promise of ultimate Sabbath day rest, ultimate Sabbath day rest uh, that Jesus is going to lead me into. Um, that's what shaped my answer to that question. What does that mean for us now? I, I heard kind of two angles on my how question. One of them was you've already You're put in time. You're a good listener, time. by the way. It's my job. And I've okay. got this little piece of uh, equipment <laughs> helping me. Okay. Um, I, I hear you saying, I've done enough reading to know who are the writers who really help me dig into the meat of scripture. And that I trust. Answers. Yeah, exactly. I've come to trust these men or women. And if they differ, that's going to flavor the way that I enter into this question. Um, I'm part of a tradition. You know, I, I know where they're coming from theologically and that's a, dat a data point, an important one. And then I've got to appeal back to the major um, conceptual approaches that I know to, you know, uh, studying my Bible. And the major one is it's a story. So once again, we got to situate this within the story. And I would say again, I, I had the first part of that even as a young person, I, I would be aware, you know, people disagree about this. My Presbyterian friends and my Baptist friends don't quite do the same thing. We got strict Sabbatarians and we've got people who, you know, are happy to, you know, play baseball on Sunday. I start, I start there and then I'm looking at the Bible passages, but I'm kind of expecting at that young age for there to be a, a clear statement, you know, this is the answer. I wasn't yet accustomed to thinking of a whole Bible biblical theology um, and answering the question that way. And I think, you know, once again, you've showed how very important that is. As a teacher, you know, hopefully you also saw that I wasn't dogmatic right. about the conclusion I came to, which right. is, you know, th those things are subtle when we teach. Um, but hopefully they're there when we recognized that really uh, faithful, wise believers can be of different minds on this. And so, um, I, I, yeah, I want to take, I want to have a take on it and, and make a good case for it. But I'm on something like that. I'm not going to be dogmatic. And as we noted before, yeah, I'm going to footnote, here's, here's what D.R. Carson says, and here's what Richard Gaffin says. So... Yeah, if, if you don't do that, if you don't acknowledge to people that you're teaching the Bible to, and I'm talking to a lot of Bible teachers, even if it's just people who are teaching their own family Bible. I mean, if somebody listens to this podcast, I tend to think they, you know, they're an extra level above the average and wanting to uh, dig in deep and get that meat. Um, if you don't acknowledge that good men, good teachers disagree on a given topic, you're setting people up for failure and for what I've heard someone call uh, susceptibility to narrowness, that if you can only get benefit from either Richard Gaffin or D.A. Carson, because you've got to agree completely, then you're going to have, you're going to end up with nobody, nobody to read. And one of the ways that I discover where are places where God apparently has chosen 
to give us less clarity than we and our wisdom might want is when careful teachers of the Bible do end up seeing things uh, a little differently. You tell a heartrending story in your book, and you know uh, you've mentioned it in this interview of the Lord taking away your precious babies. And tears are coming to my eyes because my precious babies are 10, 9, and 6, and they are up there stomping above me, even though I told them not to. And I am so glad that they are there. We had a scare with the birth of our third child. You were sitting, I guess, in some kind of ladies' Bible study group. You were reading Psalm 91 with these stirring phrases about, you know, the Lord's going to, you know, 10,000 are going to fall at your, your, your side, and, you know, they'll not come near you. And the Lord's taken your six-month-old daughter. My heart goes out to you. I just love the way you raised the question. I actually want to read it to you, what you wrote off my teleprompter here, and then just have you tell our listeners how you ended up coming to use or apply Psalm 91. Okay. You said, I remember sitting in that circle that day in tears. I had to say to the group, I don't get how this is true. He did allow evil to befall us. A plague did come near our tent. In fact, he allowed something much worse to happen to us than striking a foot against a stone. It didn't seem that he had protected us at all, you wrote. The words on the page just did not ring true or reliable. And yet, you said, I firmly believe that God's word is true, that it is, in fact, the most solid and reliable truth in the universe. So I knew there had to be something wrong with the way I was reading and understanding this psalm. Okay, so now tell us, what was wrong with your reading? How did you correct it? How did you apply the stirring passage, Psalm 91, in that difficult time? Such a good question. I mentioned earlier that for much of my life that I didn't think first about what is the original author seeking to communicate to the original audience. Because if we're ever going to figure out what a passage means to us, we have to start there. But there's another really important step that for most of my life was not a part of Bible study, especially in a, a typical women's Bible study. And that was then to ask the question, not only what did it mean to the original readers, but then to go through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What difference does the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ make on how I'm finally going to get to how I apply what this means to me? So, when that happened so many years ago, that would have been in the year 2000. Okay, so a long time. I hadn't really discovered biblical theology at that point. But my mode was to say, okay, if, if I can't apply these promises directly to me, how do I understand the promises of protection given in the Bible. And so I just began a search of the Bible. I looked for every instance, you know, uses of the words, similar words to try to see over and over again, how does God protect those he loves? And I just kept seeing over and over again, he did not quite often protect them from physical harm. Uh, and it, he, he didn't promise to. But most significantly, I saw that he didn't protect his own son. Right. And how shall he who gave him up freely for us all not also freely give us all things? That to see that truth that because Jesus wasn't protected from 
evil, from suffering, from death. Um, he has purchased, he purchased my protection. And so where do I find protection? I find protection as I hide in the person of Jesus Christ and that I am protected forever. And that enabled me to then go back to that passage and be able to see it and say, um, these, God has not promised me ultimate pervasive uh, physical protection in this life, but I'm protected for eternity. So that would have been my answer kind of in, in 2000. But then once I did begin to understand biblical theology, it totally added so much more to how I read Psalm 91, because I saw in here arising up in this passage, the theme of the offspring. I related it to the the curse that was put on Satan way back in Genesis chapter three, where God said he was going to put enmity between, uh, he says to the serpent, you know, between your offspring and her offspring. And he says, then he gets real singular. He will crush your head. You will bruise his heel. And what's fascinating, you get in Psalm 91 and you realize, okay, here is this ongoing conflict, but then he makes this promise that you'll put your foot on the head of an adder and crush his head. And, and I mean, when you read that, you kind of go, well, okay, I better be seeing something happen here. And then you look through all of the, the, these words, when he says, you quoted a couple of them, you know, I'll protect you from the deadly plague and from being pierced by arrows, that kind of thing. And you realize, okay, but Jesus was not protected from the deadly plague. And Jesus was not protected from the arrows. And you begin to see, okay, he took on the punishment that I deserve so that all of these promises of Psalm 91 will be mine, not in a physical sense in the here and now of this life, but though I might die, I will not perish. And Amen. I'm going to enjoy that ultimate eternal protection to live forever in his presence. And so it just changed how I understood and applied that verse. And I now, instead of looking at that and thinking somehow God failed me, I say, no, he's not failed me. He has provided everything I need, everything my daughter Hope needs, everything my son Gabriel needs to live in God's presence forever. They are safe. They are protected for eternity, and so am I. Amen. You know, that, that would be a wonderful place to end with the end of the story of Scripture and with this real hope. But I'm afraid I have one more question I just have to ask, okay? It's kind of a two-parter. You used three words, typical women's Bible study. No, that's four. Never mind. And that's... <laughs> That's something I don't think I will ever experience. I've never been to a, women, a women's Bible study, but my entire life I've heard what a typical women's Bible study is supposed to be. That is a fluffy, quasi-postmodern, whatever the text means to me, emoting session. Not all, but a lot. Okay. Right. Okay. So I know that your women's Bible studies are not that way. I know that when my wife leads a Bible study, it's not that way. I hear complaints about women's Bible studies so often. I want to hear you tell me, are you hopeful about the future of women's Bible studies? What good things can you point to from your experience? Love that question. Yes, I'm hopeful, especially as I travel around the country and talk to young women 
who have made themselves students of the word and they want, they, they know their Bibles and, you know, they're reading good theology and those kind of things give me hope. Um, at the same time, you know, uh, one of the sweetest things that has come to me out of uh, writing the, the five books, Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament Bible study series, is the letters I get from older women's Bible study groups. And I mean, I could go in my file and, and read a number of them to you. And they write me because they say, they'll say either personally or as their group, you know, we've studied the Bible our whole lives, but we've never seen those things before. And you, you know, what we're seeing about how to see Christ and all the scriptures, those things are opening our eyes and not, it's not just about knowledge. Their hearts are bursting because they already love Christ and seeing him this way just causes them to love him more. And they're so excited about that and, and want to share that with me. And it's, it makes me so happy to hear that. So yes, I am hopeful. Um, Sometimes I get discouraged. Yeah, you know, I'll go to a church's website quite often and I'll look at, you know, what their women's Bible is studying. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's oftentimes it can be very inspirational oriented. It can be very self-help oriented, sometimes even psychology, psychological, you know, uh, kind of help. And, oh man, that just breaks my heart because... I guess that's kind of takes us back to where we started is that the Bible story and finding ourselves in his story is what's life changing. And studying the Bible is not all about trying to figure out what I'm going to do, what I'm supposed to do. It's mostly about seeing what Christ has done and then getting in on that by becoming joined to him by faith. And so the more I see that being at the heart of what's happening in women's ministry, the happier it makes me. And it's out there. So listeners and viewers out there, I mean, just feel the depth of emotion. Emotion shouldn't be fluffy and based on, you know, vapid self-help memes. If you want to have real depth of emotion of the joy and love and peace that Christ both commands and gives, then chew on the meat of scripture. Pick up a Nancy Guthrie book and let her do some of the chewing for you. And then check out her footnotes. She told you to. And go read those books for yourself. And I've had the very same experience. This was such a thrill to talk with you. My heart absolutely resonates with every last thing that you're saying. And, you know, we prayed beforehand that the Lord would use these words in our conversation. I, I cannot help but think that he is going to do that for many listeners out there. Thank you so much for your time, Nancy Guthrie. You are so welcome. Love being with you and all those who watched or listened to this. Someone came running into Moses' tent in Numbers 11. He didn't know he was in Numbers 11, but he was. And he breathlessly told Moses, there's these other guys, Eldad and Medad. They're, they're prophesying in the camp. 
Moses' right-hand man and eventual successor, Joshua, the son of Nun, apparently sees this as a threat to Moses' exalted status as a mouthpiece for God. So he says, my Lord Moses, stop them. Moses, the meekest man, perceives what Joshua is thinking. And he says, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Wouldn't it be phenomenal if all of God's people were as activated to and interested in their Bibles as Nancy Guthrie is? Wouldn't it be amazing if 93% of church people could pretty much do what she did, could situate nearly any Bible theme within the whole story of scripture? Would that all the Lord's people were Bible teachers.